Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Football historian and author Greg Fasseri, writer of the book Gridiron Legacy, Pro Football's Missing Origin Story, discusses one of the key early pro football teams before the NFL, the Homestead Library and Athletic Club. And we've got Greg's take on the team and more coming up in just a moment. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pigpen, your portal to positive football history. And we are going back in time again to talk about one of these early 20th century uh, pro football teams that is so interesting and so vital to what the game has become today. And we are bringing in our friend, a uh, great historian who wrote uh, an excellent book on that era uh, that happens to be about his family member that, that played in those, these, this era and played on some great teams back and Greg Fasseri. Uh, Greg, welcome back to the Pigpen. Thanks, Darren. Good to be back. I'm feeling like a regular. Yeah, we're going to have to gift you a time clock here, I guess, uh, here <laughs> in the Pigpen. So, so you know, Greg, uh, you had this great book uh, that you had come out recently, uh, the end of last year. Uh, maybe you could uh, remind us of the name and uh, where folks can get that. Mm-hmm. Thanks. It's called Gridiron Legacy, Pro Football's Missing Origin Story. And right now it's available at uh, the book's website, gridironlegacy.com. And later in the year, it will become available on Amazon and several of the other main uh, online retailers as soon as we get them some inventory. Okay. And uh, folks, if you you missed it, uh, we had, uh, Greg has been on uh, many radio programs, podcasts. He, he's been all over uh, telling people about this great story. And we have a, a podcast we recorded back in November with Greg. I believe it came out on November 7th. So if you want to go back and listen to that when you're done with this podcast, feel free and you'll learn a little bit more about the book because we're going to really centralize into an earlier portion of the story that Greg tells, an earlier portion of his great-grandfather. Bob Shirings, uh, uh, I guess, uh, inclusion in pro football and his sort of his starting point. And uh, that would be the Homestead Library team. And uh, Greg, if you could sort of maybe tell us, you know, what was the Homestead Library team and how did it originate and some of the parties involved? Mm-hmm. The Homestead Library team, and t- technically it was called HLNAC, the Homestead Library and Athletic Club at the time. And uh, the club itself uh, was opened in 1898, uh, according to its cornerstone, and it still stands uh, in, in Homestead, I believe. Uh, was it 10th Street? A couple blocks above the river. It's a spectacular uh, building that's now called the Carnegie Library of Homestead. Um, 
So it had an amateur team for for a couple years uh, as it was getting its legs under itself, I guess. And uh, in the in the previous six seven years before that, pro football had started in Pittsburgh with some of the names that that historians are familiar with, such as the Allegheny Athletic Association, where, where Pudge Heffelfinger started playing professionally in 1892, the first um, pro player based on the birth certificate of pro football, that accounting ledger that is in the Hall of Fame, and the uh, Pittsburgh Athletic Club, which was their pro- main rival for a couple of years, Greensburg and Latrobe. Uh, Dave Barry ran that Latrobe team with John Brayer for, for a few years. And um, for many years, uh, he, people thought he was the first pro to be paid, you know, starting in 1895, but that birth certificate, Certificates surfaced much, much later in the 1960s. So after those teams ran with the the pro ball, as you, as it were, for the first few years, Duquesne came into the mix, DC and AC, Duquesne Country and Athletic Club. And um, William Chase Temple was the owner or one of the owners of the Pittsburgh Pirates baseball team. And uh, he sponsored uh, something called the Temple Cup, which was the trophy for the National League champions. And I believe it was around, uh, I might not get my years exactly right, 1896 or so, something happened between the two teams that won the National League. And they, they uh, rather than uh, the winner take all the money, which was supposed to happen. Somehow they agreed to split the money and, and, and Temple wasn't happy with how it played out and sort of felt like his, his cup was sullied in a way. So he sold off his interest in the pirates and decided to get into football, which was younger and he, he had more control over the development of the game. And, and, and they built quickly built a team, that uh, beat uh, the the other teams uh, that that had been around and won the championship in um, I think eighteen ninety seven ninety eight. So again, something happened with 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 Temple and um, he had agreed to subsidize the team for the the board and the, the club, but somehow the board thought that um, the team should have made a lot of money, but he he. Temple paid a lot for all the players that he accumulated, especially ones coming back from the Spanish-American War. And they sort of overstuffed the roster to prevent other teams from getting them. And um, he, he sort of left the, the the team disgruntled, feeling unappreciated, maybe accused of, of not managing the funds right, whatever the case was. He he said, I'm, I'm done with Duquesne. So... 1899 came around and he sat out the year and um, I think Duquesne won it again, but um, his friends in, in 1900 started this uh, to pr- wanted to professionalize the Homestead club that just had amateur teams in 98, 99. So they uh, got Temple to come, come on board and, and basically give him this, the same deal that, that he had given Duquesne, which was, look, your, your club won't lose any money. You won't make any money. I'm going to run the whole thing, you know, make or break. So uh, they took the deal and, 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 and he did it to basically get, you know, his, his revenge on, on his former buddies at Duquesne. And um, so of course, 
he had deeper pockets. He started cherry picking some of the Duquesne players, big names like Dave Fultz, John Gammons. And, um, and so the, the, that intensified the rivalry further at first Duquesne didn't even want to play them, uh, refused to play them, told them to go get a reputation, so on and so on. But eventually, um, uh, they they even got Washington and Jefferson to, to agree not to play uh, Homestead, but then in the end they capitulated, you know, for financial reasons most likely to get a big crowd out, and they played. But um, Homestead took care of business and, and won the the championship in, in nineteen hundred. Um, so that was the year before um philadelphia and blondie wallace uh decided to expand pro football to the eastern part of the state and then it took it to the next level okay now that championship game that you talked about there was a an award for winning that championship and you have a, a kind of an interesting story that you brought into modern times of uh i believe with, with that trophy would, would, would you like to share that story with us sure sure so uh, there, there was a newspaper then called the Pittsburgh Commercial Gazette, and and to to uh, encourage the 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 many you know the, the few teams around the area to compete against each other, particularly you know Duquesne and Homestead, um, to get them to play. The paper uh, sponsored the the creation, the development, the production of this trophy, a beautiful trophy as it was pictured at least sketched in in the newspaper at the time that was a 11 cup shaped like a football with two handles on you know on the sides and a lid on the top and um it had a beautiful engravings of a football scene on one side goalposts and 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 so on so um pretty special thing and and homestead won that and uh, so that was 1900 and then a similar trophy was offered by another group the, the following year a much bigger silver sterling silver cup in 1901 for the for the championship that the homestead won again and um long story short when i went on my journeys of discovery and found out that the carnegie library of homestead is that stands now is is the same building that was called homestead library and athletic club then which i didn't know until 2000 12 uh and went there and discovered those trophies uh still in their storage closet and they didn't even know what they had there and um i had only recognized them from from the uh, sketches and you know in, in the newspapers back then and immediately called the pro football hall of fame in canton and they uh asked to if they could display them so that's where they went and uh, are still there in in the very first exhibit in the rotunda uh, sits the 1901 trophy and the 1900 trophy um, goes around the country on um, their traveling exhibit called gridiron glory so that was a very special find and uh, a very exciting uh, moment in my life yeah no, so it was just sitting there uh, collecting dust these two trophies which are probably the equivalent to the Lombardi trophy that we know of today because this was the championship of pro football as we knew it at that time and uh these things were put away for 
what a hundred years probably hundred and uh 1211 years when, when i found them and um um so the the many people call them the holy grail of pro football the the hall of fame says they're the first known world championship pro football trophy so that that's really uh that, that is really <laughs> cool. cool and you, you helped re- refine them and uh bring them back into the light so so people could enjoy looking at them so that's, that's wonderful that's great great thing now I, you have a picture of one of the trophies in your book and i'm assuming it's the, the it's an antiquated looking picture so i'm assuming it's maybe the newspaper uh description that you were talking about and that's how is that one of the photos maybe that helped you recognize the trophies Right, exactly. So I, I sort of teased the readers early, you know, we, uh, in, in the sections describing the games at the time and, and show the, the newspaper uh, image from both years. And then, you know, at the end, uh, um, reveal that, uh, you know, that we found them and, um, and and show them in their, you know, real glory, their shiny, you know. Surprises, you know, out of the bag for your. Well, I'd say you but... you have a lot of revelations at the end of the book. It's uh, I'm not going to spoil yeah. them for the people because folks, you you got to get this book. It's really a, a really well done book, and if you love uh, sports history, you'll love this. If you love football history, you'll really love this book, and because uh, it's basically the like it says, it's the the missing origin story of pro football, and uh, Greg does a great job of uh, displaying it and telling the story, and uh, you know, it's an excellent book. I highly recommend it. Now, uh, Greg, the so sort of the central theme of this book is because your great grandfather played on some of these teams, and he played for for Homestead too, didn't he? Right. He he came on um, uh, onto the pro scene a few years after the, the very first one, the Helpful Finger Group. And, you know, best I can tell, his uh, he started playing um, in eighteen ninety seven in, in, in a local. Uh, team in in the Turtle Creek area, team called the Turtle Creek Indians, uh, also known as the Marquette Athletic Club. A little funny story when people asked him if he went to college, uh, you know, where he played, and uh, you know, he said he played at Marquette, <laughs> and people <laughs> didn't know that it was, you know, it wasn't the school. The school it was just a little club in Wilmerding. But <laughs> after he went from there to a team in Swissvale and in, in '98, and I think in '99 he ended up playing for a really strong. Um, amateur athletic club called the James F. Lallis Athletic Club. And uh, Lallis had played against Heffelfinger in that first game. So, you know, it's just one degree of separation early between Heffelfinger and my great-grandfather was Jim Lallis. And he had been a, an, a policeman in the Pittsburgh area and, and, a, and a good, uh, great amateur player and then started his own club that was the best amateur club in in the area for a few years and uh as things went the amateur teams played the pro teams and they played homestead in in 1900 and uh the homestead you know players and teams saw how well shiring played and when uh they put the team together in 1901 um, they invited him to come and join the team initially as a as a backup to the Princeton All-American Pete Overfield, who played center. But um, they gave my great grandfather you know, a lot of playing time and in, in, in uh, games that weren't as competitive. 
And uh, I think he played in pretty much every game except the two against the Lallis Club because there was some resentment there that he had left their team and things might have gotten ugly. So, um, um, but at the end of the season in in the uh, in 1901, Overfield wasn't able to play in the second Philadelphia game, and uh, after Homestead had won the first one, and then. Um, Philadelphia came and challenged them to a rematch in Pittsburgh this time and Sharon played that whole game and uh, and they 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 won again uh at the at the very end. But so was that second game that uh, you know after Philadelphia wanted to play that second game uh after they they lost that game wasn't that the one they were saying hey that was just an exhibition it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> was, um was it something like that because they were trying to that might have been the, the 1902 champion. season that got awfully complicated at the end with some, you know, um, uh, they'd each won one game and then they wanted to, you know, play a third. But um, in 1901, uh, Homestead beat them handily in Philadelphia, 18 to nothing. Uh, but Philadelphia claimed that the, the, all the scores were flukes and they wanted another chance. And Homestead had a game on Thanksgiving uh, against W&J, which they weren't able to play the previous year, as I mentioned, because Duquesne sort of blocked that. And um, so the only way that Homestead could play was if they played two days after Thanksgiving, that that W&J game. And uh, they said, well, we, you know, we're not afraid to play anybody. Um, well, let's see what happens in the W&J game. And, and they came out of it pretty unscathed injury wise. And they said, come on over. We're going to, we'll, we'll whoop you again. And, and they played two days later. And, and so they were tired that the game didn't start well for them and they were behind uh, at, at halftime, but they, they rallied um, to tie the game at the very end with five, five, when, you know, when touchdowns were worth five and it all came down to the dramatic extra point and uh, which they made once and was uh <laughs> they were made to kick again because the referee claimed the holder had put his finger under the ball or said to give it you know better uh uh you know uh balance you know in the snow or or whatever but he made it both times and, and they they were credited with the the world championship <laughs> that's a fascinating stuff there and i appreciate you sharing these stories and the, the hard research you did on these things because this is this is great stuff now, uh, Greg, uh, why don't you tell us once again uh, what the name of your book is and where folks can get a copy of it? Mm-hmm. So um, Gridiron Legacy, Pro Football's Missing Origin Story, and you can get signed copies from, from me at gridironlegacy.com, which you won't be able to get on Amazon later in the year. So I encourage you to go there. Yeah, and uh, you know some something that's uh, kind of special about this book, it was special prior to December, but uh, the foreword is by uh, of the book is by the late Franco Harris. And I know you had a relationship uh, with, with Franco and I don't know if you wanted to, to say anything about, about that or. Oh, not. sure. That's, that's nice. You know, um, um, can't say enough about how, what a warm and thoughtful person Franco was and, and how much I enjoyed, you know, the, the, the little uh, time that we spent together, not that I was in his inner circle or anything, but um, we, we first reconnected as adults after meeting him a couple of times when, you know, when I was a kid, but um, 
at the Heinz History Center. Uh, we were both on their advisory board together starting in 2012. And uh, he was the head of that board, which they called the, the Champions Committee. And in my first meeting there, you know, I shared with the group my my story that I was working on. And Franco was a passionate, you know, sports historian, football historian. And he he really, um, I could tell he was really focused on, you know, when I was talking about it. And and he approached me later and 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 you know, to give me some encouragement, asked me some questions, and he asked asked me what he could do to help, you know, which was really uh, special. And I said, well, you know, I have a lot of work ahead of me, but um, it'd be great if you'd do the forward for me at some point when I'm ready. And he said, absolutely. He would just, um, you know, he, and he said something meaningful at the time, which was, don't worry about how long it takes. He said, uh, you, you know, you have something really special. It's, it's an evergreen project and, and uh, it's not going anywhere and it'll be ready when it's supposed to be ready. So just do a good job with it basically. And, and, uh, and that, that was meaningful and gave me some peace as, as it took me about, you know, 10 more years to finish the project. And when I circled back with him, he was joke, joke with me and, and uh, pretended that he forgot that he promised to do the forward, <laughs> but that was Franco. And, uh, and, and he said he was, he was glad to do it. And, and we had a lot of uh, fun conversations as we, we worked through it together, uh, mostly on the phone and, uh, and, and talk, you know, shared, shared a lot of other stories as well. Yeah, he he was, uh, you know, I've grown up in Western Pennsylvania myself. He was a, a childhood hero of mine, you know, many of those Steelers were. And he is one of the the ones that I never had the opportunity to to meet in person other than watching a game and going to the stadium, watching a game down at Three Rivers or in Cleveland or Buffalo, that which are nearby to me, too. And, you know, I was had a I have a dirty little secret that I got to share Um I was hoping, you know, the PFRA convention is in Pittsburgh uh, this summer, the end of July. And folks, if if you're looking for details on that, you can uh, uh, send send me an an email, pigskindispatch at gmail.com. I'll get you in touch with uh, the PFRA, their website in uh, George Bazika, and get you so you can get get involved with that. Uh, But I was hoping uh, that, you know, you were going, you're going to be coming. I'm not sure if you are or not. I know you were at the last convention. And uh, I was hoping by some miracle that we would have, you know, Franco would be able to make an appearance when we have uh, some guests there, usually on the Saturdays. And uh, unfortunately, this uh, whole tragedy of of losing him uh, before that happened and, uh, you know, kind of kind of a shock to the world, especially a couple of days before he was going to be honored with having his number retired at the at the stadium. So. The timing was really unfortunate. You know, the the, the man for is, uh, you know, I, like I said, I never met him, but just hearing interviews, hearing stories like you, you telling there, uh, you know, a, a general giant and uh, good humored, but uh, unrecognizable with his violent running style on the football field, you know, violent, yeah. but graceful and, you know, his cutbacks and everything. Uh, just uh, amazing, amazing uh, man. And I think he'll be remembered for, for a lot, long time. That's for sure. I'll, I'll give you one story that I, I haven't shared, at least uh, on a podcast or radio interview before about a conversation we had since we're doing a little longer form talk. Um, when he asked me to send him, you know, a, a, 
the draft of the book. Obviously, it wasn't printed yet because I didn't have all the quotes and everything and the forward done, but I sent him a, a soft copy to read over a weekend. And um, so we could get a feel for it and what to write. And and he said, call me on Monday and we'll talk about it. So I called him and and he said, well, I couldn't read the whole thing, but I, you know, I, I read the beginning and the introduction you read, you wrote. And he said, wow, he said, you're a really good writer. And I said, wow, that, that thanks. That means a lot to me. And uh, he said, there was one line in particular that, 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 uh, that got me, you know, that got his, my attention. And I said, I bet I know what it was. And, and he said, well, what do you think? And it, and it was, I told him how one night, you know, I, I struggled with what, what to write in my introduction because it was different than the rest of the story. It was a more personal kind of reflection on why I was, what the book was about. And I woke up in the middle of the night and I just went to the kitchen. I had the vision. I, I wrote it all in, in a half hour. In the first, it started out with something to the fact that as athletes, we live for moments when we become more than we thought we could be. And it could be in a in a in an instant, just a move or or a play that we make that nobody really understands or 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 saw, or it could be something that lasts forever that's uh, immortalized, you know, in front of millions of people. And he said, "Yeah, that that was it." He said, "I really, you know, uh, connected with that." And I said, "Well, of course, you had the immaculate reception, you know, that was lives forever." And he said, "No." That wasn't it. He said it was the first part. He said it was the private, you know, the the, the internal joy of, of, of a moment that when you do something special, he said, I, I laid in bed thinking of this move that I always wanted to do. And in one game against the Cowboys, I did it. And, and I said, was it in a Super Bowl? And he said, no, he said it was just a regular season game and, and there was this linebacker they had named Lewis and I said yeah D.D. Lewis I knew, he said yeah you got it he said I put this move on him and twisted him all up and, and faked it and, and, and I scored and it was just like I had imagined it felt so good and he said that's just like why we love sports and that's what I liked about what you wrote that was really and I'm like wow that was really cool you know to have that special connection you know with, with some my thoughts about what I was writing why I wrote it and uh and he said even better years later i saw dd lewis speak somewhere and he started telling this story about this move that franco put on him and said i ended up he ended up with his hand inside of his face mask <laughs> so <laughs> and he said ah dd got it you know he, so um somebody else appreciated the move but uh that that was um one of my favorite Franco. Yeah. That, God, that's a great story, especially you have a, a legendary hall of fame uh, running back uh, thinking about something that you wrote as he's going to bed, you know, so many years after he's done playing, that's pretty special. That's uh, yeah. that's quite a testament to your writing. So uh, great job. And, and folks, if, if you haven't bought, bought uh, Greg's book yet, you know, let's stop procrastinating and get on to uh, gridironlegacy.com. And you, I'm telling you, you want to have a copy and especially an autograph copy. It's a uh, really a great book and uh, 
filled with many of the things that we've talked about here today, but it's, there's so much more and there's so many other teams that are involved in, uh, you know, this great era of football before the NFL of professional football. And uh, Greg goes through, you know, step-by-step how pro football was built uh, almost right up to the time of uh, the NFL coming in in 1920. So uh, Greg, we really appreciate you coming on here, sharing uh, some of these great stories and, uh, you know, intimate conversations with uh, the legend Franco Harris. And uh, we appreciate you, sir, for, for sharing uh, your great grandfather's story and that of the Homestead Library and Athletic Club. Well, thanks, Darren. It's great to focus on the Pittsburgh teams uh, a, a little more than um, than usual. Uh, the the, the Maslin and Canton rivalry gets most of the attention from that period. And um, but but the the Pittsburgh era was, was special and had a lot of interesting, um, uh, you know, little vignettes as well. So good. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to share that. Peeking up at the clock, the time's running down. We're going to go into victory formation, take a knee, and let this baby run out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. I just need a few moments of your time to talk about the host of the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, Darren Hayes. He's expanded the pig pen to search out information on the history of all team sports. It's a quest to find out about the competitors, teams, and places chronicled throughout athletic history through the uniforms and gear the participants used and wore. And he is taking you, the listener, with him on this educational journey to preserve sports history on the Sports Jersey Dispatch, found here on the Sports History Network. His newest podcast, called Jersey Dispatch, is all based on the jerseys that all the greats used to wear. You can find Darren Hayes and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast as well as Jersey Dispatch on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that, Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcasts. It's found right here on the Sports History Network.